Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. happening here in the life of our church, and we're excited about it, and we're glad that you're here with us. Uh, let me just make sure you guys realize, did you know this used to be an auto mechanic shop? Like, if you look at this picture, this is what this looked like just a couple years ago. Uh, one, there's not a giant apartment building behind it, but uh, this is what this building looked like just recently, and it's been transformed and now looks more like what you guys walked into this morning, uh, which is really fun. Uh, but this was Jerry's auto, and Jerry. Uh, we, we enjoyed getting to know Jerry as we were here a little bit, but as you look at the, the kind of pictures behind me, you can see that the inside of the space has changed quite a bit, but we, we like to say that we've gone from fixing engines to fixing souls, and, but we're still in the transformation business, and so a lot of things have not changed in that sense, that we're continuing to see God do good stuff, um, but this time not necessarily with engines, but you know what happens with a good mechanic shop? Uh, this past week, my son flipped the car on, and uh, some kind of liquid that, this tells you how helpful I am when it comes to anything mechanical, some kind of liquid that was pinkish and oily came out of the bottom, and I was like, that seems not good. So we got it to a place, and we took it in, and the reason we took it to a place that knows something about it was we were trusting that they would be able to look at what it is that was going on in the engine and say, well, let me tell you, here's the problem, and let me tell you what the solution is. And so we were trusting them to point out the problems and then to turn around and offer some solutions. When you look at what the, the passage we're looking at today in Colossians, that's actually exactly what Paul's doing. Paul is looking at a group of believers who have started down the road and they've had some engine trouble in their spiritual engine, and they're beginning to hit some, some trouble and some difficulty, and they're beginning to listen to some experts that don't really know what they're doing. And Paul is going to be like a good mechanic, except for he's going to be more of a spiritual mechanic, and say, let me tell you about the problem you're experiencing and what's going on wrong in your life, and let me point you to a solution. And that's what we're going to get to look at today. And so in this section of Colossians, uh, Paul is actually going to look at missteps that people often take um, in terms of their spiritual life and their spiritual endeavor. Uh, you guys realize that there's a natural human tendency to look for connection to the divine, to look for the connection to something transcendent, to look for something that is bigger and better and more glorious and more mysterious and, and also more strong and stable than what I can manage and muster out of my own strength. And so there's this desire to connect with the divine, and people oftentimes run after all kinds of things, but in doing so, there's some missteps that we can take. And so far in Colossians, Paul has been building this argument. In Colossians 1, he started off talking about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. He said that Christ is the most supreme good in the universe. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. And God worked through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or earth, make peace by the blood of his cross. Hugely important text there out of Colossians 1. Here's the big idea. Jesus is really good. And his salvation for you is really good. That, that's, the, that's what the Greek says in, in Colossians 1. Jesus, good. Salvation, good. You can trust it. He's the supreme good, supreme ruler, the, the supreme divine of all things in heaven and on earth and everywhere, everything visible and invisible. And he has done everything you need for salvation and provided everything you could for salvation or for your, uh, your restoration. Friends, that is the good news that, that Paul has been building this argument on in Colossians 1. He wants you to understand God through Christ has done everything needed to be done for your salvation and for your flourishing. You were dead and now you're alive in Christ. You, uh, you now have a new humanity. You have a new forgiveness of sins. You have new freedom from guilt. You've got new uh, friendship with God, new family in his church, new inheritance that lasts forever. All of this has come through Christ. And so Paul then gets to chapter 2 and he says, so why, if you have all this good in Christ, are you looking to something else that's a lesser than thing to try to find meaning and hope and change in your life? Friends, there's this natural human tendency in all of us to trust self more than we trust Jesus. And it's what got us in trouble in the first place. You look at the Garden of Eden. What, was it, what happened in the Garden of Eden? God gave a little bit of commands. He provided everything they needed. He was walking with them. They had a good, groovy relationship with God. They were they were tracking, they were on the same page, and then uh, man said, maybe if I did this one other thing, Satan came in and whispered a little something and said, you know, did God really say that? And maybe there's a better way, and maybe God's holding out on you, and we began to believe a lie, that maybe we could do better if we went around God in a different way. And that lie is one that we've been continuing to hear ever since. And so we have this tendency, even though we started with Christ, Paul says, to begin to get diverted and to go back to the way of self. The, the way that we that we kind of had grown up in in life. Let me give you a picture of what this looks like. Annie Dillard in a book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek tells a story, and she talks about in, in, in medical history, there was a certain period in time where uh, people that had cataracts had not been able to see at all. And so if you had cataracts, if you were born with cataracts or developed them, you just would be blind the rest of your life. And then doctors invented a method by which they could fix that cataract, take the blind people and allow them to see. And so they were super excited about this, and all the doctors said, man, bring us everyone you got. And they roamed through Europe, they roamed through America, just saying, we're going we're gonna to help the blind be able to see. And here's the description she had about kind of the response that people had to that. Said a disheartening number of them refused to use their new vision, continuing to go over objects with their tongues and lapsing into apathy and despair. The child can see, they said, but, they will, but he will not make use of his sight. Only when pushed will he with difficulty be brought back to look at objects in the neighborhood. But more than a foot away, it's impossible to bestir him to the necessary effort. Instead of one 21-year-old girl, a doctor relates, her unfortunate father had hoped for so much from this operation, but he wrote that his daughter carefully shuts her eyes whenever she wishes to go about the house, especially when she comes to a staircase, that she is never happier or more at ease when, by closing her eyelids, she relapses into her former state of total blindness. Imagine as a father to see that. You walk with this daughter and you finally have this hope that my daughter's going to be able to see. She refuses to use the eyes. She's given a 15-year-old boy 
who also was in love with a girl at the asylum, finally blurted out, no, really, I can't stand it anymore. I want to be sent back to the asylum again. If things aren't altered, I'll tear my eyes out. It's a crushing picture, isn't it? That people who were able to see now reverted back and said, I would rather not see. Uh, you know, when you think about being able to see, it's, it's a beautiful picture of, of being able to look out and see grass out in our courtyard, to be able to see a sunset rises over a horizon, to go into the mountains and see giant peaks shooting out of the sky with solid rock, and to see the, the look on a, a loved one's face and to know what a smile is. That these are things that sight ought to give us, and yet they chose to ignore the sight they'd been given and revert back to the old ways. That's what Paul wants us to understand in Colossians 2. What Paul's saying is, Jesus has given you sight. He's given you new life. He's given you everything you need to flourish and thrive and have all the life that you want to have, and yet you're going back to the old ways, uh, the ways that you used to live. And friends, don't we sometimes do that? So here's the question I want you to think about today. How is it that you're tempted to go back to the way of self? even though Jesus has provided everything you need? How is it that you're tempted to not trust the Lord, but to trust your own ability to navigate life through techniques and steps and actions and activity and things that, that you can control rather than trusting the God of the universe and the God who has saved you? Is Jesus the supreme good and his salvation entirely sufficient? Or are you looking for something more? Now, these are the questions that Colossians 2 I think is asking us, and Paul's main concern in Colossians 2 is, is for believers who are wavering in their faith. They're people who started out on the right path, but now they're beginning to doubt. Uh, friends, can I just tell you, if you think that Christianity comes and it removes all doubts, all wavering, all questions, and all struggles, you really haven't read this book. Uh, over and over and over in the scriptures, we see that, that God is addressing us as people who we struggle sometimes, people who start out on the right path and then sometimes get distracted. People who start climbing in the right direction and then we backslide and go backwards to old habits and old ways of doing things and we have to continue to stay the course and that's what Paul is talking about here in Colossians 2. You all ready to jump in? I will tell you this is one of the weirdest, strangest passages there are in all the New Testament. One commentator said this is the hardest bit to translate and, and I spent hours working through some of this uh, all week long as you look at it. And some of it just doesn't come from our world, which is what makes it a little bit tricky for us. But let me tell you where it's going, and we're going to run through some of the history of it, and then we're going to talk about kind of what that looks like in our lives uh, here in just a minute. Uh, but what we see is that Paul in, is writing to this group of believers, the Christians who are in a town called Colossae, and in that place, a certain group of influencers have started teaching things that, that are leading people in the church astray. And we don't know a lot about this group. In fact, uh, there's a lot of speculation about them where they kind of pre-Gnostic people that were uh, emerging on the scene, were they Judaizers who were pushing on legalism from the Old Testament, or uh, most likely what we think is they were kind of a mix. They were mashing up kind of uh, current Greek philosophical ideas with uh, spirituality and, and different spiritual circles, uh, along with some Judaism and, and ideas from the Old Testament, and kind of mashing them up into a philosophical, spiritual uh, kind of seeking of higher experiences and new life. and and all these other things. And so in this, Paul is going to give three specific dangers that he wants to warn them of. In verse 8, he says, Do not let anyone take you captive by, by philosophy and empty deceit. Verse 16, Do not let anyone pass judgment on you. Verse 18, Don't let anyone disqualify you. These are all defensive things. He's saying, 
Someone's coming, and that phrase to take captive is actually to kidnap. Someone's trying to kidnap you and steal you away from Christ and turn you in a different direction so that you might run after something else, these false ideas. And so Paul is going to say, don't let anyone take you captive. This is a general warning. And really what he says here is watch, make sure that no one takes you captive according to anything that's, that's not according to Christ. So there's this general warning of if anyone's leading you away from Jesus, don't go that direction. Christ is the supreme thing. Christ is the sufficient one. Christ is the one that gives you life. Why would you run any other direction? If anyone promises you something that goes around Jesus, it's, it's really a lie. It's an empty promise. It's an empty deceit. Don't trust it. Now, as he says in uh, verse 6, if you go back, he says, as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. This idea of not according to Christ, it's, a, it's really is, what he's saying is it's not just the person of Christ, it's the gospel. It's, it's what Jesus came to do and who Jesus was and all that he offers us in life. And so when you talk about the gospel, sometimes we, you think about this idea of the gospel, meaning it's the good news that you trust, that maybe you walked an aisle when you were a kid and you came down in church and, and you filled out a form that says, I want to put my faith in Christ, or you said a prayer, or you raised your hand in a service, or you did something that said, I want to trust Christ. And there's this idea that that gospel is the very beginning thing. It's the first thing you do to kind of get in the club of being a Christian. What Paul is saying is, that's actually not the full picture. That, that, that is the starting place, but it's also the continual road that we walk. That, that the gospel is not just the ABCs of the beginning stuff. The gospel is actually the A to Z. It's the whole thing. That we trust Christ, that we trust his way, we trust his grace is the way we enter into salvation and, and Christian faith. It's also the way we grow and continue in salvation and Christian faith. So Paul says, as you began with Christ, so continue to walk in him. Trust him. Don't, don't ever steer away from Jesus and all that he has for you. And so these dangers that Paul is warning them against hit exactly at this point. Uh, this isn't just some people that are off kind of doing their own thing. In fact, we're going to see a little bit later that they were insisting that everyone followed their path. That Jesus wasn't enough, but you need Jesus plus to do all the things we're doing and to look like us, to act like us, and to don't do those things and do these other things. And they started adding on all these things to the gospel because they were saying Jesus wasn't enough. And Paul says, if anyone offers you something there, don't go that direction. Then you look at the two other warnings Jesus gives. He says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you and don't let anyone disqualify you. And man, in our culture, those are like, yeah, don't let them show us. In fact, I just one little caveat, it's probably worth saying that Paul isn't provoke, uh, promoting kind of this good Oklahoma, Oki sentiment that just says, heck yeah, no one's going to tell me what to do and where to go. Like, you're going to try to tell me what to do or not do, I'm going to do what I want to do. Uh, that, that mentality, that kind of approach, that really isn't the heart of what Paul's saying. Paul is getting at something else, he's actually getting at a theological conviction that says these are defensive measures because someone's trying to knock you off the path of walking with Jesus. And so he's saying, I'm not going to allow anything else to be added to Christ because Christ himself is enough for my salvation. And so you can't judge me because Christ has already paid for my judgment. You, you can't disqualify me because Christ himself has already qualified me. Christ, we saw last week, has already removed the record of debt of your sin. He's paid for it in full. There's nothing left to be done. You're completely secure in Christ. You're established in him. You're made righteous or declared righteous because of Christ. And so there's no one that can bring a charge against you. So this is actually a theological conviction that says, you can't judge me and tell me I have to do something else to earn my salvation. Jesus already did it all. 
In fact, for me to accept something else you're telling me to do is to minimize what Christ has already done for me. And I'm not ever going to minimize what Jesus did. I'm going to hold fast to that. So verse 20, uh, verse 16, says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. Any of you think a lot about new moons festivals lately? Um, no, like these are, these are very things that are very foreign to our world. They're not, they're not very common to our experience. Most of these ideas probably are coming out of the Old Testament. And so when you go back to the Old Testament, they had cleanliness laws, diet things that they could eat, or poor guys couldn't eat bacon. Like they were cut off like from, from any, kind of, any kind of pork. And so they, they didn't get to enjoy bacon or bacon-wrapped shrimp or any of those things that, that maybe we like to enjoy. If you're not in that camp, I'm sorry I brought that up today. But uh, they weren't even permitted to do that because those things were considered unclean. And so in that world, in, in Judaism, they had to do all these things in order to kind of make themselves clean so that they could enter into the temple and have any kind of connection with God. And so in order to worship, they had to go through cleanliness rituals. They had to go through dietary rituals. They had to go through festivals and all these things that prepared them to be able to enter into the presence of God and have any kind of worship. But in the Old Testament, what we see in the scriptures is those things are actually like object lessons. Or any of you go on elementary school field trips, or maybe you have kids that are going on field trips, you go to a, on a field trip in order to kind of get a taste or experience of what real life is like when you get out in the real world. Uh, that is kind of the picture of what these things were intended to do. They were never meant to be the point. God didn't ever really want people to practice dietary laws. He wanted them to understand that they needed to have clean hearts in order to enter God's presence because God was holy and you needed to treat him with reverence. And there was a certain fearfulness that you needed to have. You didn't get to just enter into the presence of God on your own strength because we were sinful and because we were unclean. And because we were unclean, they had these rituals that were supposed to teach them to treat God with reverence. And so they had to go through this cleanliness process in order to be able to enter into a relationship with God. What we see in the Old Testament is that those things were all temporary. Those things were all just examples. They were sort of tutors that were meant to be set aside when the real thing finally came, which is what Paul says in verse 17. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul's likely playing off a teaching from Plato, where he talked about the shadow world of the senses and the real world of ideas, and Paul takes that idea and he applies it here to Christian faith. In Paul's usage, the shadow has found its fulfillment in Christ, so you don't have to honor these introductory things anymore. So these introductory kind of tutor, kind of elementary things that showed you that God wanted you to be clean, you don't have to do that anymore because Christ has come and he's made you clean. Like a shadow that you can follow to get to the real thing, those things were just meant to, to lead you to Jesus. But now that Jesus has come and Jesus has died on a cross and Jesus has been risen again, you no longer have to worry about any of those things. Those were just the shadows. The religious rules foreshadowed what God wanted to do. Now, I heard a guy tell a story about trying to explain what this looked like, and I thought it was kind of funny, but he was saying, you know, if you imagine being away from someone that you loved dearly and uh, you, you've not been there uh, with them in their presence for a long time, and so you felt the isolation and the separation and you wanted to be connected to them and you finally got to travel and get to be in the same city with them and you haven't been together in months. And so the, the, the thing you want to do is you want to run and just hug their neck and you want to grab hold of them and it's like, oh, I finally get here. And so you're waiting for that day and you come and as you enter into this, uh, this space where they are, and you walk up to them, immediately they fall to the ground and begin to kiss your shadow. 
and hug your shadow on the ground. That'd just be kind of weird. It'd be kind of awkward. It'd be kind of uncomfortable. If, if you were there and you're in a public place, you'd just be like, dude, stop. This is not okay. And Paul is saying is that's what this would be like. For them to go back and to do all these practices would be like Jesus standing there going, hey, I'm right here. Like, what are you doing down there with my shadow? Like, I'm, I'm in your presence. You have the substance. You no longer need the shadow. Why would you revert and go back to the shadow? And yet you see in verse 16 it says, let no one disqualify you insisting on aestheticism, worship of angels, going on detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. There's a phrase insisting on there that's really important to our understanding of this text. Part of what he's saying is, this isn't just people saying, I'm going to go do this thing. They're actually putting pressure on everyone else to fall in line and do all the things they are doing. They're insisting that all the people around them do all the things that they are doing. Now, these uh, examples it gives are kind of strange to us. Aestheticism is this supposedly humble kind of self-abasement, uh, kind of self-overly um, fasting or starving yourself or not taking care of things. Or uh, there, there, there are certain religious groups that actually inflict physical harm upon themselves. But these are the kinds of things they would do to say, well, I'm going to try to clean myself up or get myself up or do this radical, hyper-spiritual thing in order to make God accept me or, or to make God bless me or to bring about favor of God, to show that I'm so committed to God that I can do this radical thing. That's what it's talking about when it says asceticism. It talks about worship of angels. They may have actually been engaged in worshiping of angels and, and, and other spiritual beings. Uh, they may also mean that they thought through some kind of aesthetic experience, they could move themselves up to a higher spiritual plane and, and be on the plane of the heavenlies and be able to worship God in that higher sphere. So it's a little bit interesting trying to figure out exactly what that is, and we don't know for sure but they were going on in detail about vision. These were mystics who claimed to have experiences where they've connected with God in a certain way, and they're telling you all about their visions and expecting those to have implications for your life. These are the kinds of practices that they were engaged in, and Paul says they were puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. A sensuous mind is technically, it's a, it's a mind of the flesh. And that term flesh in the Old Testament or in the, in the Bible is actually not just a, doesn't just mean like fleshiness, it actually means the old man. So they've reverted back to the old ways. Their mind is still accepting all the old ways that they had to live and had to do everything, but it's not spiritual. And so they're claiming the spiritual um, life and vibrancy and, and all this spiritual experience. And Paul's saying, no, this is all in your mind and act of the flesh according to the old man, not according to the spirit. But to be spiritual is to have to do with the spirit of Christ, to be connected to Christ and his Holy Spirit. And that was what truly makes you spiritual, which is why in verse 21 he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why are you acting as if you're still alive to the world and submitting to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? It's not really a question that Paul is asking. When he says, if, he's saying, it's, he's saying if, and I'm assuming the answer is positive, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world and you did. He's assuming that that's true. He's saying, You've trusted Christ, and if you trusted Christ, then you're dead to the old ways, and you don't, have to, you don't have to adhere to those old ways of trying to earn your salvation, of trying to clean yourself up, of trying to do all the things in order to make God love you. You can actually just trust Christ. So why then do you submit yourself to regulations and go backwards to connect to those things? This elemental spirits of the world, there's a lot of discussion about what this really means. It may mean that there's actually 
elements of, of spiritual beings and um, maybe even evil beings and other things that they're a part of. It, it may mean also that it's kind of like we think of elementary school. It's the basics. It's the, the beginning things. Like why did you, why are you going back to the basics of things that you've already should have progressed beyond? Um, it may also be uh, the kind of this idea of uh, the elements of the world in that time. They talked about air, fire, water, and earth, and that old cosmic order of those things in that world actually helped, actually had spiritual connections to them and divided people into classes and groups. And he's saying, why are you submitting? But, but the point is true, regardless of what it's pointing to, uh, Paul's main point is obvious. Why are you going backward to trust things that you've been freed from? If Jesus has set you free from those things, why are you living still as a slave? But it's interesting because the, the phrase that, that he uses there in verse 20, he says, why do you submit yourself? And it's the, the verb there is a middle voice. It has something to do that you're willfully doing. And so Paul is saying, they can't make you do this, but you are choosing willfully to submit yourself under these old regulations and rituals and ways of operating when Christ has already freed you from these, you're going backwards to do these. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Probably had to do with, with food and cleanliness and those kinds of things in that day. He's saying Christ has already made you clean. Jesus actually talked about this as well. In Mark 7, um, Jesus makes a connection to the same point. In that they think Paul likely was kind of riffing off what Jesus said in this whole text. Verse uh, Mark 7 says, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, and you hold to the traditions of men. And Jesus said to them, You've got a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. Um, you catch what Jesus is getting at. And you've, you've missed the heart of everything I'm about. Friends, when we think about human history, have we ever seen people that have taken this book and used it to do something with it that's not what God intended? Like we've seen it over and over and over in human history. And Jesus is calling them out. And he says, look, you've taken the good thing that I gave and you're turning it into something that's bad. You're taking it and you're building traditions. You're building rules. You're building difficulties. You're making it hard for people to find me and to find my grace and to walk in my love. And so Jesus came and he gave us a hard break. It's why Paul doesn't, doesn't waffle around in, in what he says here, but he says, if you died to these things, and you did, these things are gone. The old man is gone. The fleshly man is gone. God has given his spirit to you. You're alive in Christ. You have a new day. I'm building an entirely new humanity. I'm building a new community called the church. I'm giving you a new life and a new chance to build something good and no longer surrender. Why then are you willfully submitting to the old way that actually couldn't change your life? It's interesting in verse 22, he says in parentheses, referring to the things that perish as they are used. Um, what happens to food when you eat it? That's kind of gross, right? But it's gone. Like it doesn't produce anything good. And what Paul, I think, is saying here is, look, all that stuff is just stuff, and it's all going to go where stuff goes, and you don't really want to build your life on it because it's not eternal, and it's not going to lead you to where you want to go. Verse 23, he says, the problem is they have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence in the flesh. When he says appearance of wisdom, 
actually says, these things have the reputation in the eyes of men of being really wise. Social media, maybe? Think of the things in our world. How many places do we see where people put on the appearance of being really wise? And you take a snippet or a, 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 a quick cut or a, a talking point, and you take that and you promote it, and you go, man, that sounds really smart. And, and what Paul says is that some of those things that sound really smart in the eyes of other men and build a reputation for being really smart don't actually lead you to a place of life, joy, goodness, and fullness. He calls it self-made religion that's being promoted. Ever seen self-promotion of spiritual ideas in our world? What Paul is just warning us of is that not all of these ideas are good intent. In fact, a lot of them will lead you away from Jesus. And if anything leads you away from confidence in Christ and trust in the life that he gives, he says, run away from it. It's dangerous to you. It will kidnap you and hijack your faith. These are DIY spirituality. They're self-made religion. It's superficial answers that in certain religious circles would actually make them look good. But notice what Paul says. They are of no value. That all the work, all the effort, all the beating of your body, all the kind of harming yourself, all the, the religious checklist that you follow, it doesn't actually change your heart. It's all external, superficial rules that are trying to be pressed around, but it's all earthy stuff, and you're trying to work your way from earth up to heaven. And what Jesus says is God won't be reached that way. God sent his son from heaven to earth in order to make himself known. We have to receive him as revelation. We have to receive him by faith. We have to hold fast to him as the one that can bring about change of lives. It's not about what we can earn or what we can do. It's not about our DIY spirituality that we can, that we can drum up and do for ourselves. It's about surrender and submission to Christ. Friends, it's easy to say, don't do this and don't do that and don't eat that. It's harder to build a life. It's built faith. That's what Christ wants to do. But those actions, all those religious activities, they didn't actually increase God's love for them. It didn't grant them more favor. It didn't earn God's blessing. It didn't put them on a higher spiritual plane that, that made them better than everyone else. But it was self-promoted stuff. And really what God really what God wanted through all those things, he just wanted hearts. He wanted the hearts of his people that were set apart to him. To say, I trust you. I'm gonna walk with you. I'm gonna rely upon you. I'm not gonna run after anything else. But you notice where all the things that Paul is warning him against started. Verse eight, he says, according to human tradition, verse twenty two, according to human precepts and teachings, verse twenty three, self made religion. These are all things that started on earth that men made up to try to get themselves to God. And what Paul says is they're of no value. So in this, where do we go? What is it we do that we want to build our lives upon? Paul's going to then kind of turn the corner. I want us to look at where, where Paul points us because that's the problem. What's the answer? What's the solution? And Paul's concerned with these believers, many who are probably young in their faith, that they're going to be led away from, uh, from the Christian faith. And so he's going to tell them where to look. In verse 19, he says that the ones who are running away, they are, the problem is that they are not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. When the Bible talks about the head in the New Testament, Paul specifically is talking about Jesus. Christ himself is the head, and he refers to all of us as the believers of the church 
that, that we are the body of Christ, and so we are connected to Christ. We're united to him, but the head directs everything. The head provides information to us. It informs us. It directs us. It cares for us. It nourishes us. And we're spiritual because we have the spirit of Christ in us, unifying us and uniting us and strengthening us and teaching us. So what is Paul's answer to all the problems of being led astray? It's a simple command. He says, hold fast to Christ. But it, it's tricky for us because that it doesn't feel very accurate. You ever get with your faith and you're like, but just tell me what to do. Like, tell me, tell me what I, you, give me the three things you want me to do, and, and I'll jump in and we'll do those things and everything will be okay. And what Paul says is, just hold fast to Christ. Don't, don't go away. Stay true to him. Don't run from him. And the reason is because that life comes ultimately through daily dependence upon Christ. Friends, you understand that there's three ways that humanity really despises Christ. The, the, the tr- traditionally, we have all, we have all in, in terms of our human, human beings, had difficulty accepting three primary things about Christ. It's why the New Testament calls Christ a stumbling block that people have a hard time getting over. The first is the cradle. The second is the cross. And the third is the crown. We have a difficulty with the cradle because it means God became human. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the God of the universe being in human flesh. But Jesus was a baby. He was an infant. And yet he was fully divine and fully man at the same time. And we have to believe that God revealed himself most clearly in the person of Christ who came and walked this earth. And that's a hard thing for us to accept because if he was just a man like us, then is he really strong enough to save us? Is he really, is he really divine enough for us to follow? Is he really wise enough for us to trust if he too entered the cradle just as we did? And that becomes a difficulty. The second is the cross. We like to think that we're pretty good at managing life ourselves. Like, thank you very much. I think I got this. Uh, we, we like to be independent. We like to think that we're strong. We, we're taught as we go to school that you're meant to be achieving. You're, you're meant to do the thing. You're meant to get the gold star by your name. You're meant to get the award. You're meant to, to run after the prize and, and to do all the things. And so we, we learn and are cultivated to be achievers. And the cross tells us that we can never earn our salvation, that we can never achieve our own security. The cross tells us that we were not enough, but the Christ was. And it's only through Christ that we can be forgiven. And we're saved by a sacrificial gift of grace that can never be earned, but must be received as a free gift from God. So the cross is tough for people that want to earn their way. Lastly is the crown. When Christ rose from the dead and, and, and came out of the tomb, that he was victorious over sin and death. And because of that, it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is not just Savior, but he's also Lord, which means we have to submit to him. And we have to trust him to be the king of our lives. And so the crown is hard for us because it means that, that we are not in charge, but we have to submit ourselves to Jesus and to his leadership. And so it calls Christ a stumbling block. Now, it's interesting when you think about the, diff- the different ways in which uh, these kind of dangers that Paul presented to us, how they would lead us away from that Christ, Christ of the cradle, the cross, and the crown. And it, here's, I want to just point out to us three ways that we need to, we need to fight the temptation to run away from Jesus, but um, ways that we can commit ourselves to hold fast to him. Uh, the first is we have to choose trust over technique. It sounds like a little bit of a strange one to start with, but you guys realize how much we like to control our circumstances? That whenever there's a problem in our lives, what do we do? 
and I'm just going to rearrange everything in my life. I'm going to do all the things. I'm going to create a checklist. I'm going to make sure I do X, Y, and Z so that I get things fixed. And if I just manage my life just right, everything's going to fall into order. And so we, we want to manage the techniques of life. And we think, well, if I have to just approach God a certain way, you just tell me the steps I follow and I'll do it. It's like we, we treat God like he's the soup Nazi. You remember if you've ever saw the soup Nazi episode of Seinfeld, don't need to watch it. But if you did, there's this approach where they wanted soup and there's a guy that came and they had this certain way they had to talk about and they had to ask for soup a certain way and they had this certain technique they had to approach the soup Nazi in order to get rewarded with the soup. And sometimes we treat God that way. Like if you just teach me the right technique, if you teach me the right steps, if you teach me exactly how I do these things, then God will have to bless me. And that's really not what Christianity is about, that we have to choose trust over technique. It's not about the earthly techniques that we apply. It's about the heavenly grace that we receive from the person of Christ. Next, we choose faith over fear and frustration. See, one of the reasons why in that world they would uh, do these aesthetic things and these hyper-spiritual things and follow these rules and run after fast and do all these things is that they thought it was a way to appease the gods or make the gods do what you want. It was a way to, in, in a sense, buy off God and make him do what you wanted him to do. And so you would do all these things and it was because you were afraid of life and the way it is or frustrated with the, life, the way that your life is going. And so, friends, sometimes we resist holding fast to Christ because we want a sense of control over our lives. We want to control the circumstances, and we don't like the way things are going, and we start to feel frustrated, and we start to feel fear. And so we think, well, if I just do these things, God will have to bless me, or God will have to fix this situation. If I, if I just pray more, if I just lean in here a little more, if I give a little more, then God won't hold that sin against me. Or if I, we start, whatever the if thing that is in your brain, we start to create ways that we have to then choose faith over fear. Can I tell you this week, uh, and it's just been a good week. It was such a joy getting to open this this building. Uh, like, uh, there, it, like last week, we've just been on a high. It's just so much fun. We worked so hard. It's been 10 years in coming, and we opened it. And just a little bit ago, I was looking, and like kids were running outside. I'm like, we dreamed and prayed about that. You know, it's like so many good things. There's a thousand good things that happened this week, and there was one bad thing. And can I just confess and just be honest? Like, my heart got wrapped around that one bad thing, and I just was frustrated. It was causing me to miss out on all the joy of all the good that was happening. And sometimes that happens in our life, that our fear and our frustration allows the one thing that we're just like, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to figure out what to do with that. And we miss out on the freedom that Christ wants us to have. We have to choose faith over fear and frustration. Lastly, we choose grace over personal performance. And sometimes we think our performance is what earns God's favor and goodness to us. That we, we, we shift our eyes down to us. We look at our own work and our own effort. We think that's the thing that's going to bring God's blessing. We have to choose grace. Grace says that it's not up to what we did. It's up ultimately up to what Christ did. And you notice what it says, that the, the grace that the head brings to the, or the growth that the head brings to the body is from God. That ultimately our spiritual growth, our spiritual vitality, our spiritual life doesn't go because we have worked our ways from earth to heaven, but it's because God, that our growth comes down from God to us as an act of grace because he loves us and he trusts us. Friends, let me, uh, let me end on this. The next three weeks, we're going to jump into Galatians chapter 3. And, and this week, Galatians 2, what Paul did was, here's what not to do. 
here's some missteps you could take in, in trying to walk with Christ. Don't go that direction, but hold fast to Christ. When you get to Galatians 3, Paul's going to turn and he's going to say, here's what you do in order to change your life. And just as a pastor who's been doing this for a long, long time, I'll just say I think this is the thing we struggle with the most in this generation. I don't think we know how to take the Jesus idea that's out there and allow Jesus to do life in here that changes who we are and pushes us out in a new direction. So that's what we're going to be leaning in over the next three weeks as we look at Galatians 3. And here's what, how Galatians 3 starts. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, not the earthy things, not the things down here you're trying to do. But if I can rearrange all the deck on the fire, on, on, on the all the furniture on the deck of the Titanic before it goes down, like don't don't live down here. Seek the things that are above. It says, because you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. And with Christ, who is your life, appears. Then you will appear with him in glory. And Paul's going to then tell us what it looks like to trust him and to walk with him day in and day out. Sound good? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the love that we have in Christ. I thank you that we can trust him with our past and all the sin that's happened. And we can trust him with our future and all the things that will happen in the new heavens and new earth and eternity. Father, I pray that you would help us to trust him with our present. Father, help us to trust Jesus today, to walk with him. Father, as we begin, help us continue to walk with Jesus.